You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Listeners, welcome to the show with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, and uh, we're joined by Cameron Murray, who gave an outstanding speech at last night's 127th annual Henry George Dinner. Cam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Carl. Yeah, well, uh, before we get on to some of the controversies of last night's speech, we really have to focus on uh, what it was about uh, the report, Unspoken Alternatives to Expensive Housing, is now online what for you was uh, the revealing figure? What surprised you when you went into work on this report regarding uh, some of the existing housing policies that no one's talking about? I was actually surprised at just how much the cost saving could be. I, I really had in mind before I started that it might be some minor tweaks here and there because when we talk about housing policy, we often talk about very small changes, 10% here, maybe 20% if you're lucky in reducing housing costs. But here, the median sort of uh, household in the land rent scheme in the ACT is saving more than 37% of their housing costs over a 10-year period compared to renting. And we already know renting is cheaper than paying off a house in terms of out-of-pocket expenses. So that was that was pretty surprising. The other thing is is we also looked at um, community land trusts. Now, they're an interesting model. They're a sort of a community-run or independently-run organisation that controls the resale value of housing so that people, uh, current and new residents, get to access that housing below the market price. And using the uh, Australian data and, and applying the models that we've seen successfully work in the US, these residents would save half their housing costs compared to renting. I mean, these are astronomically large savings. And if we want to talk about housing affordability, these are the types of things we need to start talking about. Yeah, they are you know, jaw-dropping numbers. And uh, to think that we have this Canberra Land Rent Initiative, it's never really mentioned uh, uh, in the press as an option for affordable housing. So it was very timely that uh, you came out with this report. What was it like trying to uncover the data behind it all? Funny you should ask that, Carl. I was surprised how little good data the ACT government had. There was a lot of emailing back and forth and double-checking because the figures I found in annual reports didn't match up with other figures that I was given. And there seemed to be not a great deal of pride in this scheme amongst the public service. They sort of just administer it. But there's no marketing, hey, look at this, look how many families are benefiting from our scheme. I had to go and infill all those uh, numbers from what I was given to work it out. Um, So I I found that a little bit surprising. But I I think the reason why is because the Australian psyche is tuned to property as a financial investment. If you let go of that and you think about property as a, a, a thing that you just need to occupy every day, you want it secure and you want it cheap and you want it well maintained, well, that's a different perspective. And then you can just focus on getting cheaper, secure housing. But as a financial investment, these schemes, you know, when there's a housing boom, they're not the greatest thing. They're, they're just cheap, secure housing. And there's a whole swathe of households who want that. There's almost 3 million renting households that could save billions per year in rent by getting into these types of schemes. 
Yes, I remember interviewing Simon Tennant from the ACT government. Uh, when I was travelling around Australia, we did a show on the Canberra Land Rent Initiative and it was a similar sort of thing. I was like, wow, so you're pulling in 2 to $3 million a year in government revenue? Uh, is that something you promote? And uh, there wasn't really that level of, uh, of uh, positivity there and it's something that's positive. What we're really talking about here, listeners, is channeling away from the banking system and either towards the government or towards your community with a community land trust, uh, the, the payment for land. And uh, there are so many savings that are available when that's done. Yeah, and you can see how popular it was. In some of the years, the early years of the scheme in, in Canberra, I th- they were telling me something like 70 or 80% of new houses were in the scheme. That's how popular it was. Uh, so, yeah, it's sort of surprising that something that was so popular with people and surveys of residents were, you know, very, very um, uh, positive about the scheme and about how much money they'd saved once they got in there and how they got to build their own home on this land that they were renting at a discounted rate. Um, you know, from an outsider, maybe maybe that's what they needed, that outsider to come in and give them some perspective that, hey, you guys are doing something good, you should talk about it. Uh, and hopefully this report circulates around and the right people read it and they maybe learn that, hey, yeah, we're not doing too bad, we should talk about this. So uh, let's have a look at uh, some of the other numbers there. Uh, you actually calculated that the ACT government was earning some $9.2 million in 2017. That's quite a lot of revenue for you know, a smaller type city. What were some of the other numbers that uh, you uncovered that people should remember? Uh, if I recall off the top of my head, I think the, the thousand residents that are in the scheme had saved something like nearly $70 million on their housing costs since the scheme began, which is pretty astronomical. Um, and uh, give us a bit of detail. How do you work that out? Because how many people are, are in the scheme? So currently there's a thousand households. There were 2,000 altogether at, at different points in time and some households have left. Uh, some of the surveys show that they saved so much money they decided they could buy their land outright and enter the private market. That's how, that's how useful it was. So yeah, 70, 70 million, it's, it's quite a lot of money. <laughs> the way I work it out is I, I took the sort of median rental data in the ACT and I took the average land price of people in the scheme and the average construction costs and I essentially worked out um, how much better off they are getting into that scheme than renting the same house uh, otherwise and taking account a little bit of inflation in the, the market rent. Um, and taking into account all the mortgage costs, et cetera, for constructing the house. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty uh, accurate, I think, in terms of the representative household in that scheme. Uh, they're saving around 9000 per household per year. And what I think is actually, you know, if you, that's, that's a lot of money, but if you think about how much extra you have to earn to get 9000 after tax in your pocket, you know, for a lot of families, that's something like thirty dollars or $40,000 extra you have to year, get a year. So essentially they've given themselves a massive pay rise by, by getting this cheap housing. And what you get to do then is spend $9,000 in the ACT. So all those local businesses, they get the benefit of that, that money circulating around uh, in the local economy rather than sitting with landlords, whether they're local or uh, international or residing in other states and getting the rent. So, you know, there's a lot of um, private benefits to the people in the scheme and there's a lot of public benefits as well. 
So then for someone who's looking to buy into the Canberra Land Rent Initiative, uh, if you're buying in the wider market, you're probably looking at a $550,000, maybe if you're lucky, a $400,000 purchase. Uh, what would it be to buy in? So the, the average land uh, price was $275,000, the market price of the land. But you don't pay that two seventy five. dollars you just pay... 2% of that uh, 5500 per year is a rent. So rather than, for example, borrowing a, a mortgage at over 5% to, to pay for that, you're paying 2%. So you're saving 3% at least uh, per year in the out-of-pocket costs compared to trying to buy. And that's, that's quite a lot, you know, 3% of almost 300000 But at the same time, the other good thing about this type of scheme is once you get in and you're paying those costs, you can accumulate equity in the house portion of the land. So as you pay that off, your costs your costs go down once you've paid off the house, just like homeowners. So you get that you know that future gain of having much much lower housing costs in the future. And for for households that are getting towards retirement, paying off that house quickly and then having very low cost of living is much much better than renting through your retirement, for example much, much better. So someone who's in the rental market might need, you know, will need to borrow money for the house, probably around about $180,000, $200,000 instead of that four hundred dollars to five fifty dollars type mark. Yeah, so I think the typical house was spending around $250,000 on construction. Um, so they get a $250,000 mortgage uh, instead of a $525,000 mortgage to buy it up front. So, you, you know, you're so far ahead to, be, to begin with. Um, and yeah, most residents are very happy with it. They'd recommend it to their friends. It's it's taken a lot of residents out of market rental and into home ownership. And, and in Australia in particular, that's important because it comes with security. You get to decide how long you live at that house, not the landlord in many cases. So I think we often don't talk about that enough when we talk about affordable housing. We also want secure housing. And that's what it does. You can stay in that scheme your whole life. Your children can inherit the land or the and the obligation to pay the land rent if they qualify, uh, but you can sell out. It's your decision. So you've got that long-term security as well. So we've done the comparison between renters and someone buying into the land trust. What about the comparison between people who buy in the open market compared to buying within the land trust, the land rent scheme? <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's much cheaper, obviously. Um, the trade-off, if you're making the decision to buy in the private market or buy in the land rent scheme, is are you also going to pay a premium to speculate on the chance of capital gains? If you don't want to pay that premium and have that sort of financial investment tied up, then you should go with the land rent scheme because not only do you pay just the 2% of the market value, but that assessed value that you're charged uh, the 2% of is capped at the local wage index. So even if there's a property bubble, your costs aren't going to go up. If, you're, if you want the financial risk, you could you know, borrow the extra money and buy the land yourself and hope that the price does go up and that you get out at the top. But of course, you take the risk. And we've seen property prices, for example, already fall 10% in Sydney, and they're on their way to that in Melbourne. And if you've just leveraged into that piece of land, that's not ideal. So I think that's important that to, to recognise that what the scheme essentially does is take away the value of land speculation from the homeowner or the chance of it. 
and they just get the housing and the security, but not the sort of housing as the financial instrument component. And that actually sits in all that risk with the state. And of course, it's particularly riskless for them because in the ACT in particular, they already own all the new residential land anyway. So it's just a bit of an accounting entry on their books from one column to another. So look, that's that's what we should be thinking about. Housing or property doesn't have to be financial. It can be, you know, a product that we all get to enjoy uh, securely for our life. But in Australia, we have this tendency to think housing, investment, finance, those three things are the same, but they don't have to be. And this scheme shows it. So there you go, listeners. If you're a long-term renter or you know know, youngsters going through university, uh, goodness me, this is the policy you've got to start screaming about. Get in Martin Foley's face, Tim Pallas. uh, They've got to make this an election policy, guys. Labor government been very disappointing with their policy fraud when it comes to housing affordability. This is something that could finally give them some credibility in this space. And I think what you want to do when you push for this is recognise that we already have extensive housing subsidies that don't work. And we need to forget about those and start thinking about these types of schemes, the land rent scheme and community land trusts that actually give people cheaper housing. They don't just pump money into the sort of financial aspect of the housing market. I think that's important too. Now, in last night's uh, rather fiery speech, uh, well, maybe I'll call it inspirational, you certainly had people thinking, and uh, within it there was the best demolition job yet of the housing supply mantra. And listeners, you know that's something I've been working away well. Cam just delivered uh, an array of figures that shot it down in flames. So uh, can you uh, recap some of those uh, numbers that uh, listeners can find on the Prosper website, the full transcript of the speech? Yeah, so to recap, the supply siders uh, in the housing debate, they think we don't have enough housing and that's what would make it cheaper. Um, But the best analysis says if you built 50,000 extra houses a year for 10 years, you might have a 10% price effect. You might get prices 10% lower. Now, How many people would that take to build that many houses? Now, we've been building a record number of new dwellings lately, 200,000, and we almost have 10% of the labour force devoted to construction right now. So if we want to add another 25% on top of that, we're talking another 2% of the labour force. So something like 300,000 workers or the population of, of Canberra They need to stop what they're doing and build houses continuously for 10 years. That's just the massive real resource investment for a very small effect on the cost of housing. And, you know, what was most shocking and the reason that I wanted to talk about it is because we know we can go over the borders to the ACT and reduce the cost of housing by almost 40% tomorrow four times better tomorrow or, you know, we wait 10 years and devote an extra 300,000, you know, years of uh, labour to building all these extra dwellings for the chance of 10% price reduction. So, you know, the orders of magnitude are just all wrong if you're thinking supply is the problem. Let's just repeat that. If you uh, lived in the Canberra land rent uh, scheme, you'd save 37% over 10 years, but uh, to get a 10% drop, we need to build an extra 50,000 homes a year for a decade. 
So, uh, yeah, it's all about taking away the land price. That's what goes up in value. That's what the land rent scheme does. That's why any sort of land taxation, land leasing, land renting, it all takes away the ability to create artificial scarcity by those who own the land. That's the key point. That's, that's exactly right. <laughs> Last night you summarised just how great these housing subsidies are versus uh, the need for public housing and things like that. Yeah, I mean, a back-of-the-envelope calculation is that between first homeowners grants, capital gains tax discounts, discounts on developer charges and other subsidies that go to you know, essentially landowners, uh, we're, we're in the ballpark of $60 billion a year in uh, subsidies that don't make housing cheaper. You know, back-of-the-envelope calculation is we could um, create uh, a community land trust for everyone who doesn't own land uh, and give them free land for around $12 billion a year or less than a quarter as much. And that would actually save people more than 50% of their housing costs. So we're, we're really on the, on the wrong track here in terms of what we're already doing with housing subsidies. The ACT land rent scheme, for example, costs the government nothing because it's just a shift of this financial gains to land off the home buyer or the homeowner to, to the public. And so they, they miss out on those gains, but they get cheaper housing. And that costs nothing to the budget. And you can save 37% uh, of your housing costs right there. So yeah, we, we've got to think the orders of magnitude of what we're doing that doesn't work is, are off the charts and we need to at least stop doing that. And as we stop doing that, we should be doing things that work. And now we have this report as a bit of a recipe or a how-to guide of, start, of, of how to do that. Brilliant, Cam. Well, uh, we better leave it there. You've got to uh, race off to the airport. And uh, listeners, let's now go to the live recording of last night's big event with about 80 people. So many intelligent uh, types in the room. Great to see some Renegade Economist listeners in the audience. Yeah, hang tight for this one. Uh, thanks, Catherine and Carl, for having me. Uh, it's, uh, it's a real honour to be invited um, today. It's the, the, the guys at Prosper have also really helped me broaden my thinking in the last few years when I've been involved in doing research with them. Uh, they've started many interesting discussions and I, I recommend to you all listening to Carl's 3CR Renegade Economist podcast that I listen to each week. It really helps expand your thinking. If you want to think about housing, if you want to think about economic rents, if you want to think about just getting a fair go from our natural resources, that's a go-to thing for me. Um, so today, I'll put my stopwatch on so we don't go too far off track. Today, I also want to try and expand your thinking. I want to do what um, Prosper has done for me and, and pass on new ways of thinking. And uh, let me start with the first big lesson that I got when I read Henry George. Uh, the big lesson for me was that most of our major economic problems stem from the unequal distribution of the ownership of capital. What George said and what I remember, and I'm paraphrasing, was that how can there be unemployment if every household has their own plot of land to work and to farm? How can there be involuntary unemployment? And that really struck home with me. Maybe it doesn't for you, but I just thought, wow, isn't that amazing? And what if that's the same problem we have with housing. 
If everyone owned their own home, could there be a housing affordability problem? Because I know people who bought their house decades ago are living in free housing. If we all had that, I wouldn't be here tonight talking to you. So those, those lessons are powerful. So let's, let's go into more detail and then do something that I believe is almost never done, is, that actually, is to actually talk about making land and housing cheaper, perhaps even free. That's what I think we should be talking about. And to make my case, we need to take a few detours and we need to use our imagination. So let's imagine there's a market with monopoly characteristics that is an essential input to everyone's modern life. The high prices charged by monopolist suppliers are making life extremely difficult for the neediest in society who often go without life's basics to cover their costs. One group of people, the experts, think the solution to this problem is to make markets work. They see complex market failures all around not, that are not only difficult to understand, but extremely difficult to combat. But they want to try wherever they can to fix these failures little by little. Another group, the radicals, think the solution is to break the market. They say that fundamentally this industry will never overcome its monopoly problem and market failures failures and a totally different approach is needed. They argue that instead of market provision, everyone should get what they need for free. Not only that, the government should raise $100 billion in extra taxes each year to do it. The experts, the Make Markets Work team, laugh at how implausible this is. That's over 6% of GDP. How could it even be possible to give people such a gargantuan freebie? How would anyone vote for it? No, it's much better to make markets work and tinker around the edges. The experts release report after report showing how their proposals might reduce costs by a few percent here and a few percent there. That is apparently the best we can aim for. Luckily, with the exception of the United States, the second group, the radicals, who want to break the market, won the debate. Universal public health care has been established in just about every rich country. Australia and Canada's Medicare system, the French and British National Health Services, just about every rich country decided that provisioning universal access to quality health care for free was a basic function of a modern wealthy country. In healthcare, we solve the monopoly problem by breaking the market. We spend a hundred billion dollars of our tax money to do it and we are all better for it. Now let's talk about land. And we're continuing our detour and we're first going to think abstractly about a particular type of land where two roadways cross, an intersection. Imagine living a century ago in 1918 and seeing the massive social failures at road intersections, fatal accidents, congestion, we've had it tonight, 
People have been late. The rich with their fancy motor carriages zooming dangerously past the poor with their horse and hand-drawn carts. Being a common sense person, you see this situation and propose a non-market solution of taking turns to freely access that intersection using a system of electronic lights run by a public government agency. If you tried to propose this system today, you'd be labelled it as mad. You know it's true, don't you? The make markets work crowd, the experts, the economic consultants, we know they would call us mad because their modern solution to traffic congestion is to price roads. That's the only thing we can do, make markets work. A public rationing system is complete nonsense, they would say. And yet, every country in the world thinks the best thing to do on all our public roadways is not to have a little auctioneer there letting the rich people cross, but to take turns accessing it for free. Remember this, okay? Turn taking. It's innate. Every parent at the playground teaches their child not to bribe other kids for a turn at the swings, but to take turns. Even the experts force their children to do this, even though their theories say it's nonsense to do so, and the kids should take wads of cash to the market and bid at auction for the swings. They would never... <laughs> I know, when you think about it in the abstract, it can be a little bit crazy. So we can finish this detour now. Our brains are switched on, we're thinking abstractly. Let's talk about land for housing. I've got another story. We're going to get to the point. And I just want to reinforce how crazy it is the way we talk about housing. You are an explorer and you stumble across an island society with four families. Three of them appear to own their homes and control all of the land on the island. One family does not. I'll call them the Murrays so you can remember. Another family, we'll just call them the Smiths, although I thought about calling them the Turnbulls or the Morrisons. They house the Murrays who have nowhere else to go for an exorbitant fee. No matter what the Murrays do, how hard they work, what they earn, their landlord is able to extract most of the economic gains they make. After all, these other families hold the land monopoly. Now, do you think to yourself, as an inquisitive and thoughtful explorer, why can't this society just cooperate and give the Murrays a plot of land for their own home rather than extorting them for a large chunk of their income? Or do you think, look at the Murrays enjoying, enjoying the spoils of markets at work? Because I can tell you when the experts and the economics profession see this society a million times magnified across Australia, they think B, look at the magic of the property market at work. They have nothing to offer the Murrays. In fact, the current policy advice from many of these experts is for our island society to do nothing or at best perhaps subsidise the Smiths for housing the Murrays. This is exactly what our discounts, for example, on developer charges are. It doesn't seem like a solution to me. Or perhaps we could give the Murrays more money to specifically spend on housing. But wouldn't that just go straight into the pocket of the Smiths? We have those schemes too. They're called first homeowners grants. 
or what if we were actually serious? Maybe we could limit the rent paid to something like 25% of the Murray's income. We have such schemes as well. The National Rental Affordability Scheme. But even then, 25% of someone's gross income is a long way from the 0% that the other families pay for their housing. What this story shows, I hope, is that home is why home ownership makes sense. Home ownership provides secure, non-market-priced housing in perpetuity. It provides us a way to escape the monopoly land market. We essentially buy our way out and we get free housing for life. That's what the benefit of home ownership is. So when we think about making housing affordable, we should be thinking about escaping the market. I almost need a little ringtone so you know what to do, but listeners, go to the podcast, the podcast to hear the full speech. It's probably another 40 minutes to go, and there are so many good points to it. It's a little bit different to the transcript you'll see on our website. Controversy. See you next week. Thanks a million for listening. Check the show notes on earthsharing.org.au. My friends, my friends, there's just no other way I can do it. This is a two-hour-long show in total, guys. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately, the 3CR podcast software doesn't allow me anything beyond 50 megabytes. So I'm going to have to redirect you over to Mixcloud. Check out our Renegade Economist Mixcloud page there. You can click through uh, via the show notes. So, uh, yeah, sorry, that's the best I can do. And guess what? That technicality has forced me to get on the mic. This is the 11-year anniversary of the Renegade Economists on 3CR. If you feel like uh, giving me a birthday present, tell you to put a comment on the show. One day I'd love to see a conversation there. A few good pointers, a bit of feedback, a story on where you listen to the show, a story on a conversation you had with someone and how uh, you learned something here or opened you up, da-da-da, uh, I don't know. Anyway, people, let's stay sane amidst the rent-seeking smorgasbord that we endure. <laughs>